Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast, and Happy New Year. I'm Tyler Green. As you know, it's a holiday weekend, which means we have a holiday clips episode for you. Last week, we listened to the first part of my 2019 conversation with Larry Pittman. This week, the second part. Museo Humex in Mexico City is presenting Lo que se ve se pregunta, a retrospective of Pittman's work that descends from a 2019 version of the exhibition that originated at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. The exhibition was curated by Connie Butler. The Mexico City presentation was coordinated with Adriana Curry-Alamillo. It's on view through February 26, 2023. The 2019 exhibition, on the occasion of which this show was taped, was titled Larry Pittman, Declaration of Independence. The exhibition revealed Pittman's engagements with America's history and with issues and subjects that have been core to our history and identity, including landscape, violence, citizenship, belonging, and more. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon and IndieBound still offer it for about $50 to $65. Part two of my 2019 chat with Larry Pittman, after the break. On view through February 19, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Picasso Cut Papers. Devoted to a little-known yet foundational aspect of Pablo Picasso's practice, Picasso Cut Papers spans the artist's full career, with many of the nearly 100 works on display for the first time. Showing a new side of a familiar artist, the exhibition features some of Picasso's most whimsical and intriguing works made on paper and in paper, alongside a select group of sculptures in sheet metal. Picasso Cut Paper is on view at the Hammer Museum through December 31, 2022. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Organized by and on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through January 8th, Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund, is the first large-scale survey of the Columbus, Georgia-based collection. Highlighting a wide-ranging group of photographers diverse in gender, race, ethnicity, and region, 
It features 125 photographs by 73 artists, including Gordon Parks, Sheila Pre Bright, Mark Steinmetz, Michael Stipe, and William Christenberry, and asks questions that identify and complicate conventional ideas of an American South and Southern photography. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about reckonings and reconstructions, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. When we left off the first part of our conversation, we were talking about ways queer identity manifested itself in the paintings, and we kind of branched off from that. There's one more thing in that line from, two more things in that line from which I want to pick up. And, and one is how you've painted the figure. There have been times in your career where you've been happy to paint figures and have painted lots of them. There have been other times in your career where we get body parts and not the rest of the figure, if you will. Um, that sounds far more violent than I mean it to. <laughs> the first period during which the figure really comes in is in the beloved and despised paintings of the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and the figure comes in through the silhouette, which you nearly single-handedly um, introduced into contemporary art. One of the things about the silhouettes is that some of them are obviously very, very obviously men. But there are many moments in the paintings where the gender of the silhouetted head or bust, neck, shoulders up, is indistinct. And there are a couple of times in the paintings where you point to that by linking them with white lines that join those two silhouettes to other parts of the painting. Were the silhouettes ever, always, never for you about gender being constructed rather than innate? Were they about complicating ideas of gender? Well, you're right in your viewing of some of the the figures. You 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 are they effeminate men or butch women? You know, I mean, I, to put that to advance that but kind even, of useless it, binary at this point. But even to back you know, up, some of the silhouettes also kind of have indistinct profiles. So not reading as male or female and ponytails. And in the context of those paintings, which you're referring to a, an American colonial past, men wore ponytails. You know, there's, a, there's a, an even multi-painting narrative and reference there. I think in those paintings, I was, I was looking at the silhouette both as a specific image of a person and as an archetype. And in looking at, in, especially in the... In American history, there's so much of the the cutout silhouette in black paper, and when you look at those done in homes that they would have them framed of their children, you really can sense 
the specifics of that child many times. In other words, it isn't a shorthand version of a child. You, you get a sense of... It's astonishing how a silhouette, when it's done well and with care, can signal the fully fleshed out body without ever showing it. You're just showing the contour line and the void of blackness where you fill in what that person might look like. Um, so the, the whole idea of the, of the silhouette for me was the specifics of the given contour, which give you a sense of a real person, and then the void of the blackness to actually flesh out perhaps yourself, your own behavior, or current social contrivances, behaviors, constructions, or whatever. So it's it's a I think it's a it's a very kind of useful and very elastic format that you can go from the very general to the very specific and from the very specific to the very general. So I'm just was even looking at it as a formal structure. So you're politely saying to me no it was not necessarily intended as a complication of gender. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. No. A little, as we get into the mid to late 90s, and I guess the early aughts, the figure is back in your paintings as recognizable bodies, fully formed, two and a half dimensional, if you will, because everything in your paintings is up against the picture, picture plane, so we don't really get an opportunity for three dimensional. The figure, figure is back um, in, in a series of works that address masculinity and, and what it is, and in some ways, the silliness of the construct. Because there are so few figures in your body of work, when do you decide to bring it in? What makes you decide this is a place or an idea or an engagement that needs the figure? Well, like for example, as we're speaking now, the these are, we'll, we're look, now looking to the wall adjacent to us, or the figure is going to make another appearance in the next body of work that I'm preparing for an exhibition in, at Lehman Mopin Gallery in March. In New York. In New York. And the title of the show, as I always do, the title comes right at the beginning. And the title of the show is Found Buried. So what do Found Buried? I love that every week we some coin is found in some field in rural, in rural Britain or some amazing amphora jars found off the coast or a new mummy is found in Alexandria or a new fresh grave site is found in a war zone or so it's just the whole idea of how the earth is a great it's 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 this we always think of the oceans as this vast depth but i think the more frightening receiver of history is the actual earth and what exactly is still in there is really intriguing to me and frightening what is actually in there so that's the whole idea of found buried is is also is is necessitating bringing the figure back again as well as objects so it sometimes just has to be there it's not something you think through as differently from you think of flowers or something else. It's just what fits. It what, yes. In other words, I think I was, again, coming back from the title, like in the way that we were discussing early on in the first part of our conversation of 
Declaration of Independence and how that dove also happened to dovetail in with autobiography. Yes, I think that, um, you know, in this case, the, the formation of right from the beginning of the title is necessitating, well, what exactly do we find buried? We find bodies and objects buried. That's really pretty much it. Uh, we've been talking about the content of the paintings. Now let's kind of talk a bit about how and why the paintings get made the way they get made. Surface seems important to you right from the start. In Birthplace from 1984, which is the first work in the exhibition, but chronologically the second work in the show, you, you have applied gold leaf to what appears to be a vaguely pulped board. It's not a pulped board, and in, 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 you, know, you can see the grain of the board um, and that it's pulped is what I'm trying to say. It's a work that itself, but also its placement in the show, that argues for how important the surface of your paintings was and is to you. When and why did you come to care about the surface so much? Well, I, I'm happy that painting is in the exhibition because it is also reflects my, really directly reflected my day job, which was... In my 30s, I worked for Angela Dongia, and I was a salesperson in his showroom, which is on the corner of San Vicente and Melrose, right across from what is now the Pacific Design Center. And I worked there for many years, and I thought, you know, I think all artists do this with their day jobs, saying, what can I get out of this moment that I have to do and bring it to my studio? So I was no different, you know, like, how do I make the thinking, the boredom, uh, the excitement, the materiality of that experience in the day job and bring it to your studio. So I was doing that. So that that painting is on mahogany panel is a wallpaper that I bought at a discount because I would get an employee discount. And it's a is a distress cork over gold leaf. So I had a wallpaper person, professional wallpaper person, come and adhere the whole background of the painting, which I think that painting is maybe 10 by 10 feet, 9 by 9 feet square in, in two panels. And so, you know, that was, you know, it's a bit the very beginning of, of the kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with materials, with surface, and... That's why I named it Birthplace. So the a birthplace is... Wait, did you name it Birthplace in 1984 or did you name it later? No, 1984, 1984 okay. yeah. So the birthplace is not a city. It's not a neighborhood. It's not a childhood location. It's actually that surface was my birthplace. And it started with the lamination of the... Uh, wood panel with this highly artificialized, sensate, almost synthetic performative surface. And that interest in surface then carries all the way through. And you never wavered from it as an important thing? No. Because? Because I thought that my birthplace, in all of its interiority had to be synthetic and not organic. That I wanted to insist that 
to de-essentialize experience. You know, we're taught that authentic experience is real experience and primary experience is authentic experience. And right from the beginning, I wanted to insist on that synthetic experience is also primary experience and that synthetic experience is also original and authentic experience, mm-hmm. you know. Did I say that right? Or yeah, did you did, and that? it made me wonder. I, I, I assume you've never used oil paint? I have. Oh, you have? Yes. So, so you have used more yes. non-synthetic paint. I well. mean, I, I guess maybe that is mm. going back to Declaration of Independence and birthplace, the place of birth of me but of my work. The, the inception of my work was to move away from neo-expressionism or expressionism and to, to actually debunk that type of all those registers of authenticity based in essentialized thinking and experience. Name all the Los Angeles expressionist painters of the yeah, okay, right? None. There is a read about the surface of your paintings that they reflect uh, influence of engagement with conversation with um, L.A. Finnish fetish from McCracken to Irwin, etc., etc. Yay or nay? No. And I'll tell you why. I think as much as I admire that work, they are still tethered to our materiality with the resonances of, of abstraction and of reduction and minimalism. Yeah. So that's where I depart. I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of things that are constant throughout 40 years of work or almost 40 years, over 40 years of work. Um, But there is nothing more constant in, at least for me, in your oeuvre than um, the way you slap everything uh, up against the picture plane. There is very, very, very little pictorial depth in, in your paintings. And when I've thought about it in the last couple of weeks, I can't think of any a uh, non-abstract painter that insists on throwing stuff up against the picture plane as consistently as you do since cubism. And if if listeners have one, tweet or email me, because if there is one, I, I just can't think of it, him or her. Why have you, why has that been such an important core tenet? Let me fast forward a little bit before I go back. I love to drive in Los Angeles. I know that I can't fathom this. <laughs> I don't know. There's something so exciting to me. Um, my daily route down, down Franklin, down Western, down Sunset, through to get to school, to UCLA where I still teach, and back. I know the whole entire city without a GPS. The end from west to east, north to I know the whole city. I love the act of driving. And part of it is, is that the windshield of my car flattens everything out, flattens experience out, and frames it formally. So I like that's why I generally prefer to take longer to traverse the city and not get on the freeway. Because uh, the I prefer to be on the surface streets and the the windshield of my car is a curatorial device and a formalizing device of what I'm receiving. So that's for my entire adult life living here and driving. 
That's very a very important visual exercise for me on a daily basis. Uh, how that is that able that's able to set up a proscenium stage in a way for for viewing of complex imagery. So it helps on a curatorial level and sets it it's it insists on the issue of the tableau, uh, the flatness of the tableau. Then going back, let's go back now when I started again that kind of de-essentialization. I mean, if I was going to try to make contemporary painting at 22 and also being an atheist and let's use the older term at that time, gay, um, (laughs) (laughs) as I would have referred to myself at that age. um, Oh, so you aren't, you aren't, you aren't saying atheist meant gay. You you really mean gay. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That that called for if I was if I were to attempt as an atheist and as a young gay man to make a painting and try to make it feel contemporary and useful again and of some service, that what came before it is this, these high dosages of essentialization of the relationship between the maker of the object and the object being made, which was a painting, or that the painting was there to as a vehicle to tell the truth, to be authentic, to be a direct tether to personal feelings, expressions, emotions. And I was leaning more towards synthetic experience simply because of my own cultural dislocation as a gay young man and trying to find authenticity within a type of displaced, alienated, synthetic experience that anyway, by the way, all young kids go through. I just simply acted on it because I was interested in the vehicle of painting. So maybe if I were doing performance at the time or video, I wouldn't have done it. But painting mandated, actually mandated to me, that I had to move away from all those other defaulting ways of making it all those emotionally defaulting, expressionistically defaulting ways of creating visual imagery. So one of the things that had to go was that type of pictorial depth as a vehicle for, as a device to indicate authenticity and truthfulness, another essentialized idea of experience. So as a corollary to that, for you, is or was, the closer something is, the closer a painting is to the picture plane, the truer it is? No, no. the more irrefutable it is. <laughs> I like that. Another constant through much of the work is the way you have used um, often very thin white lines, sometimes appearing to be beaded, sometimes not. Um, sometimes with things hanging off of these white lines, sometimes not, to hold elements of a composition together, to link the major parts of a composition, of a painting. It's in the dining room painting we talked about earlier, for example. It's there in the beloved and despised paintings, and it's there, and I'm going to regret this description um, as soon as I say it, in the giant kind of infinity shape that underpins an American place. Why is that connective line important? Again, as we, we've discussed the role of the applied or the decorative arts is an important text for me to have studied and continue to study in the making of my paintings. For example, the role of the garland in interior decoration. The garland many times is mm. what connects 
let's say, a cameo where some event or portrait is taking place. So it's just uh, the garland as a, as a connecting device. Mm-hmm. It says, let's go from this portrait to the next one to the next one. And used as a device to connect meaning, literally, in interior decoration. The tie-back for a curtain to close the pictorial space or open it up to the outside world. The idea of tethering and untethering, much like a spider, spider web. You know, always very delicate, highly considered connections. But it's also a way of suggesting to the viewer ways of physically navigating the surface of the painting. Like the painting that you're describing. I could pick any of the Yes, there are many, many routes that one can take through those little filigree dotted lines that say, go from neo-geo black-white squares to gun. Go from gun to fulgent overripe gourd. So it's also suggesting a kind of choreography of the painting in the way that I was talking about the garland in the interior room of choreographing a way of approaching the meaning and decoration in interior space. You know. Lots of garlands in Carrie James Marshall's paintings too. The same, yeah. So I don't know how to describe this, <laughs> this next thing I want to ask about, but it's also in the painting, in the, in the work consistently throughout. The paintings are full of painted but ink-like lines and doodads and passages, often um, against white backgrounds so that they stand out all the more. Initially, they were often separated from the rest of the composition by virtue of these white spaces. And as, 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 as you've gone through the years, you've decided to or figured out how to just make these ink-drawing-like passages just part of the compositions. Uh, What are they, where did they come from, and why are they important? I guess when I'm thinking of making a painting, I go from the very general to the very particular. Right from the beginning, a formal issue, strictly formal issue, is setting up the architecture of the experience, the architecture of the space, a physical armature that will hold all these things that I'm attaching to it makes sense. So that kind of almost brutal, pragmatic analysis and evaluation of the surface comes very right away or else I'm in trouble. If I delay that, and I have, I make that mistake fairly often, that I delay that large formatting of the experience too much into the third half of the painting, I'm in trouble. What you're talking about is what I call... I mean, I know this sounds strange to say, but it's almost that last moment where the painting puts on its own false eyelashes. You're ready to leave the house and you you take a brutal analysis of yourself. Am I presentable? What do I look like? And you make just the most minute adjustment to your presentation out into the public. I know that might sound antique an idea to a lot of your listeners, but I was still raised in uh, a home and in a generation where the way you dressed and lived inside was different from the way you presented in public. You know, those distinctions of leaving the house were so huge and still are for me. 
So th these fine filigrade moments or, you know, fine line work, as you suggest on light grounds, are a way of saying to the viewer, yes, I'm advancing this meta experience, but there's also, it's maybe almost an insistence on the folly of the moment in the way that I said, putting on the fake eyelashes onto the painting, which is in and of itself a folly or the delusionism, the self-delusionism of assessing yourself in a mirror before you walk out into the world. It's a form of folly. So I guess that's kind of how it operates. But it's also at the very end. That happens always at the very end of the making of the painting. That's what I was going to ask. So it's both the last thing we see often in a painting as we move physically toward it, but it's also the last thing you do on the painting. Before the painting's made public. You know, we were talking about the flatness of the painting and how you don't do illusionistic space, but you have often in many paintings over many years, going back to the mid-'80s, built up paint to provide topography on, on your surfaces. In the early paintings, it's generally in the corners. Um, it's flat expanses of usually paint of a dark color that's, that's built up in these flat planes that play off of each other. In later paintings, it gets much more complicated and crafty. And so I wanted to ask about that a little. One of um, You obviously know you're doing it and have great intentionality about doing it. There's a 2016 painting titled Grisaille Ethics and Not Painting with Cataplasm, number one. Cataplasm is the thing I'm, I'm describing. And in that painting, it's, it reads as candle wax. Is there a way you think of that move, of that extension of the painting of that creation of the extension of the painting into our space, the viewer space, the building of topography into the painting. Again, it's completely uh, when I do use, like in the paintings, Grisaille Ethics and Knots paintings with cataplasms. First of all, the cataplasm is a poultice of sorts. A cataplasm is a poultice. I have to interrupt for a second. I had to look up cataplasm in the dictionary, mm -hmm. and it literally says sea poultice. Yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> In this case, it's again, when I use uh, the buildup of paint, and I'm so excited that it showed up again, you know, it shows up very early in the exhibition and then makes mm -hmm. an appearance at the end. Mm -hmm. And I was excited by that. And actually, that was a group of paintings that I showed in Berlin in that year. And again, I wanted to insist on synthetic experience, artificial experience, topical experience, which is what a poultice does. You actually lay uh, a poultice on the top of, let's say, your arm that might have a rash or an infection, and it's supposed to soothe it and maybe draw out the malady of sorts. That's what a poultice might do. In this case, these paintings are physically ill, so I'm actually applying a poultice onto the surface of the painting to draw out uh, or to remedy whatever is occurring in the painting itself. So it's, it's actually the poultice, what is indicated by the poultice is that it didn't come out of the internal logic of the making of the painting. It, yeah. ca it came out from an exterior force. Yes, me, but maybe some other exterior force would say, oh my God, these paintings are ill. Let's apply a poultice onto the surface of these paintings. So it's also acknowledging the kind of painting as object, 
but the synthetic nature of the experience as well as being primary experience. And the paintings are so flat in so many ways otherwise that it always leaps off. Yes, and there's no connection. There's no relationship. Like, for example, I'm excited that there's no relationship between the poultice and the painting, and they are deeply unaware of each other's existence. <laughs> Last question on formal stuff. One of the things that seems to kind of scream out of the show is that when you make a horizontal painting, a painting that is very horizontal, that you are intending it as an, as an extra chesty painting, as an extra as an extra big deal painting, an extra specific address of your life, of America, of the themes that we've been discussing here. Is that curatorial or are you doing that? Horizontal paintings are the most difficult paintings for me to make. I don't think that way. I feel Mm. much more comfortable on a formal level orchestrating ideas in a vertical format in a painting. I guess I think of it I mean, that's what I get from Western European religious painting that I love, or folk art even, the, the format of the iconic, the icon that I've learned so much about and gotten so much from. So for me to make a horizontal painting is just, it's the hardest thing for me to do. All the paintings that I'm doing for the new show are horizontal. And I guess this is maybe my own kick in the butt, but I always make a list of things that I can't do anymore or things that I should try again that are difficult or I'm not comfortable with, and that's one of them. Mm. And I think that maybe the horizontal is this wonderful moment that can seem cinematic, operatic, proscenium stage, overt drama. It, It lends itself to that as opposed to to the other format, which is vertical. So it invariably demands of me really a different approach. Uh, Almost, I I become more throwaway in the horizontal format. I, I have to sometimes take bigger risks that I'm very uncomfortable with and unsure about and... I want to close with, if you will, the semiotics of Larry. There are things, forgive the word, that have been in the paintings and recur in the paintings over 30 or 40 years. You know, there's an there's a, a increasingly popular in European art history circles publishing format that is kind of the dictionary of artist X, you know, the dictionary of Henri Matisse, where um, art historians will break down and extend it a very, you know, long oeuvre by things that are organizable in dictionary format and describe them and how artists, an artist used them and what the artist meant by them. It's an interesting uh, new, not, I don't know anybody in America who's done it, um, way of organizing information, visual information in a textual form. So the inevitable first semiotics related question is, was Jasper Johns important to you? Is Jasper Johns important to you? Sometimes his work is unbearable to me. It's such an eloquent, exquisite, repressed, closeted, accurate, real, wrenching, emotional portrait of a human being that I'm just really, really far away from and not interested in 
looking at. And you all are generationally different in terms of the American yes. experience too, absolutely. Yes. But the way he has specific meanings for specific objects. I think he's a symbolist. I'm not a symbolist. Do you mean symbolist in the Redon way or a symbolist? No, a, in a, 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 I think he uses symbols. In other oh, words, he does too. one image, one meaning. I'm interested in the mutability of cognitive language. Um, that you could look at a flower in one painting and then that flower is a person in the other painting or that flower is an idea in the next painting or the flower is the anus in another, in another painting or the flower is the labia in another painting. You do it with the noose and yes. the anus too. So I, I'm not a, I don't use... The imagery is... It's all about suggesting to the viewer that yes, these things occur regularly and reappear constantly from work to work, but you have to exercise or control your cognitive language of it and suppress it to be able to enter the painting because it's proposing a new association with it, not a symbolic association with it. So there are not things you use, say eggs or light bulbs, for example, that remain? No, they're not symbols. No, but they don't. They don't have. I know they are symbols in the bigger world. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they don't have consistent meanings for you and how you use them across no, body support. Not at all. Not at all. Owls. Well, like for example, the owl in in many of the paintings shifts from male to female it does. with not a problem. Or embodies in many cases both genders. Again, I looked at the owl as a malleable image and not necessarily a symbolic image, and that's why. I'm interested, and maybe to get more to your question, I'm interested in symbols, but I'm interested in dislocating the one accepted reading of the symbol, the canonical meaning of the symbol, and secularize it a bit. A good example of that might be the way you use uh, a certain shape as both a leaf and as a vulva yes. type shape over and over again. Not sure necessarily in the same painting, mm-hmm. but how how that form, if that's really a form, has um, malleability. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that I always get from viewers is that they'll point to something in the painting and say, well, what does that mean? And so I, I, think, I think with... With Jasper Johns, you, there probably is a code that will always remain deeply uh, unencodable and personal, but one, has, one can take some idea, one can get some idea of what they might mean because of their historic reoccurrence. I would say when someone asked me, what does this mean? I said, well, first, before you get there, that's not how you, you can have the experience with a painting. What is the logic that's being, what's the internal logic that's being advanced in the painting? And then look at the attendant meaning of the objects, not the other way around. That the attendant meaning of the objects that are being viewed are not the key to entering the experience of the painting. But the interior logic of, visual logic of the painting is a way to enter the painting. And then that suggests the attendant meaning of the specific objects which derails your cognitive language expectations 
of what is prompted by that object normally. There are a lot of things that recur in the paintings, owls, candles, fish, flowers, ships, boats, light bulbs, eyes, but there are still new things that come in. So in the mid-2010s, I think for the first time, you bring in dominoes. Do you lean on yourself to bring in new things and not use the same toolkit? Well, that the, the paintings you're referring to were was a, a group of paintings called Nuevos Caprichos, and it was again, as we were talking earlier, I it's a conjectural um, introduction of two people who did not know each other historically, but spoke with equally but very different brutal existential voices, and that's Emily Dickinson and Francisco Goya. The domino, so it, I think it was a series of 10 paintings that I showed at Barbara Gladstone in New York. And the, the way they were installed, it was considered as an installation. So in dominoes, I don't play parlor games. I had I, to sit there and think, wait, are these called dominoes? Yes, yes, they're, they're dominoes. dominoes. <laughs> and so you hook up a five to a five yeah. to proceed, and then the other side might be a three, and you hook up the three to the three. So the installation of the painting the paintings around this very large room were connected by their domino connection uh, as it was installed originally. But it's also a, you know, comes out of if I, the roots of Romance languages to dominate or dominating. or. And they suggest an element of chance, which runs through Goya's Caprichos. Yes, chance and connectiveness also just simply as a formal structure. I, I love formal structures as well. Like we were talking earlier about these little filigree tethering devices. That's a, a different type of tethering device. The domino may be a little bit more graphic, more obvious in connecting the paintings. But it was also a way of introducing a connector from painting to painting that insists on the connection between Goya's uh, laser-sharp understanding of brutality, as well as through the pastoral lens, romantic lens of Emily Dickinson, her deep secularism, her atheism, and maybe her proto-lesbianism as well, where she writes so specifically about pain as located outside of the body, and more as an intellectualized construct out in the world and not located within the physical body or her, her poems about death. So I stayed away from the poems that dealt with, let's say, love or specifically about nature or things like that. But these specific poems are as brutal as any Goya and vice versa. Do you have to push yourself to find those new things to bring into the paintings like the dominoes because i mean like the light bulbs have been there forever yeah but do you think to yourself "Mm, too many light bulbs lately maybe you got to find a new thing absolutely absolutely i mean maybe and i i don't mean this in um in an effete or um delusional way but i i try to maintain that vanity in in my practice it's it's a vanity for the objects and for the practice that they keep they keep advancing but they also keep changing i guess if i have an anxiety after this wonderful exhibition at the hammer or it's always been my anxiety at whatever age i i i 
I hope I can remain relevant, which is different from being topical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and that's the distinction I make. So it's a very important, I think a lot of work right now is very topical, but I don't think topicality necessarily means relevance. Larry Pittman, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been my pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.